This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Tuesday, October the 3rd. On the pod today, we're in Winnipeg for Election Day in Manitoba. It's been a closely fought and at some points controversial race. Will Manitobans send the PC into a third term of power or will voters opt for change? Meanwhile, back in Ottawa, Liberal MP Greg Fergus is elected Speaker of the House of Commons. He is the first black Canadian to take that post. Can he restore trust in Parliament and some civility after the hunka scandal? We are broadcasting today from the Museum of Human Rights, specifically from the Garden of Contemplation, an appropriate setting for a show about two major political choices happening today. Voters in Manitoba have been contemplating who they want to form the next provincial government, and we will have extensive coverage and analysis of that election as polls are set to close in just four hours from now. But we are going to begin in Ottawa, where another important choice has been made. MPs have selected Liberal MP Greg Fergus as the new Speaker of the House of Commons. Respect is a fundamental part of what we do here. We need to make sure that we treat each other with respect, that we show Canadians the example. Because there can be no dialogue unless there's a mutual understanding of respect. I'm going to be working hard on this, and I need all of your help to make this happen. Because this is the place where hard debates will happen. Fergus, of course, replaces Anthony Rota, who resigned last week, and that, of course, being the fallout from Rota's choice to invite and recognize a Ukrainian soldier who fought with a Nazi-aligned unit in the Second World War, that recognition happening in Parliament. The CBC's Olivia Stefanovic is on this story for us tonight, and she joins us now live. So, Olivia, the new speaker, Liberal MP Greg Fergus, a history-making choice. Walk us through that. Yeah, well, it's a a historic day, David, in the House of Commons. In fact, when Greg Fergus was dragged to the Speaker's chair by the Prime Minister and the leader of the official opposition, you could actually hear the roar of applause from outside of the chamber. It was that loud. Fergus not only becomes the first black Speaker of the House of Commons, but he's the first Quebec MP to to sit in the Speaker's chair in about 40 years. The last Quebec Speaker was Jean Sauvé, who was appointed to the position back in the early 1980s, and she was the first and only female Speaker of the House of Commons. Fergus is no stranger, of course, to Parliament. He was elected when the Trudeau government came into power in 2015. He's a Liberal MP who represents the riding of Hull-Aylmer, just across the river from where we are on Parliament Hill in Gatineau. And he's held a number of positions as parliamentary secretary to a number of ministers and also to the prime minister himself. But now as speaker, he will have to be nonpartisan, maintain decorum in the House of Commons. And this seems to be a full circle moment for Fergus because he told the House of Commons today, David, that as a teenager, he used to pour over uh, the, the, the transcripts of the House of Commons from the Hansard. And he also noted that he became a parliamentary page in 1988 and actually served water and notes to the longest serving member of the House of Commons, Louis Plamondon, who's a Bloc MP who actually presided over the Speaker's election today. 
All right, so it all comes full circle for Greg Fergus. And Olivia, you, you watch the images of him being dragged to the speaker chair. It's kind of a tradition from an earlier, uh, less uh, safe age for speakers of parliament. But given the way things have gone there right now, uh, dragging him seems appropriate because he's got some challenges ahead of him. What's Greg Fergus going to face in this job? Well, David, it's a challenge to become a speaker at any time. And we are no longer in a period of time when this tradition was actually in place, when in the British Parliament, uh, the speak, uh, you know, they actually elected a speaker who actually risked ex- execution for speaking bad of the monarchy. So that's, in fact, why the speaker is dragged to the chair in the Canadian Parliament. Um, but Fergus, you know, he'll have to move the House of Commons forward past this controversy, this international embarrassment that's fallen on the House of Commons with Anthony Rhoda acknowledging a Ukraine veteran who served in a Nazi unit. He'll have to try to restore the confidence of the House of Commons. So that's job number one in a way, but he'll also have to maintain decorum on a daily basis and try to referee, if you will, the House of Commons. Now, we did get a taste of how he plans to do that when he presided over question period for his first time. He asked MPs to treat him like a new car and not put a dent in him on his first day. And for Fergus did call out a conservative heckler at one point for, uh, you know, interrupting someone who was speaking. And he also told MPs who were interrupting their colleagues that even though he can't see them, he knows who's talking. All right, Olivia, thanks so much. He's got a, a busy time ahead of him. That's the CBC's Olivia Stefanovic, live in Ottawa. Tonight will be an historic election night in Manitoba as the province will either see its first elected female premier or its first First Nations premier. And with record turnout in the advanced polls, Manitobans are paying attention. Despite a PC ad that ran over the weekend that suggested you should vote like no one is watching. Stand firm and vote how you feel, not how others say you should. Because during an election, it's okay to disagree on issues without the fear of being judged. So vote like no one is watching. All right, we have our Manitoba election panel back for more insight, who everyone has been watching. Kelly Saunders is an associate professor at Brandon University, and here with me in Winnipeg, Mary Agnes Welsh, principal with Probe Research. Okay, uh, Kelly, let's start with you. I need some help. Help me understand that ad. It, it, it brings into the conversation the suggestion that it's a bad thing to vote for the PCs and you should only do it in secret where no one knows what you're doing. Why run an ad like that at this point in the campaign? Well, if I had the answer to that question, I would be uh, making a lot more money than I do. I don't really know. It's it's odd. I mean, I've never seen anything like this in all my many decades of, of watching politics and seeing lots and lots and lots of ads over the years. I, I'm not quite sure what they were trying to get at, uh, but it really does send the message that maybe it is embarrassing to vote for the PCs, and so you don't have to worry about outing yourself if that's something you want to do. It's certainly not the kind of positive of messaging I think a party would want to have about its platform and its ideas and uh, and yeah it's just uh, it's an odd one for sure 
Mary Agnes, you know, advertising is supposed to make you feel good about your choices. Uh, I, I don't know how that one plays. I mean, what, what do you think the strategy is there? Yeah, the last, I mean, I would say the last couple weeks of the Tory campaign has been a bit a bit weird, actually. Uh, and that ad is part of it. I think I think it's supposed to speak to those voters who don't, who don't want to get cancelled. Sort of the anti-woke, you know, I, I, I know I can't say this out loud, so I'll say it at the ballot box. But it really, it, you're right, it's not... In contrast, Wob has had this kind of Obama-esque, hopeful, let's work together kind of mm-hmm. final couple of, uh, of weeks of messaging. And this is really in contrast. So, so just to build on your point, how you said it was weird, um, Heather Stephenson kept a very low profile in the stretch run, right? Which typically is a sign that a party thinks that their, their leader is a liability more than an asset. I mean, how should we view that? Yeah, a bit of maybe a bit of a liability, maybe honestly a, a bit of giving her a break from, you know, a campaign that's not going great. I think her last uh, kind of rally the troops um, event yesterday was pretty low key. Um, she was she has not been in Winnipeg for a week, hasn't spoken to to reporters for a week. It has been very it 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 feels like just dragging your butt to the finish line. And that's that's how that campaign feels. So so Kelly, on that not being in Winnipeg for a week, when a lot of people look at Winnipeg as really being decisive in this outcome, it is, of course, the, the, the center uh, the area for the controversy over the politics of the landfill search, which has been such a, a, a big part of this. I mean, is there a connection between the ad, the low profile in Winnipeg, and, and, and the calls to search the landfill? Yeah, I think it really just shows a a party that's kind of unraveling from within. I think that their internal polling probably has been showing for some time now that they are in trouble and they're scrambling, you know, so they're, they're, uh, they're saving the furniture, right? As we've talked about before. So this ad, obviously it was, was in the pipes. So it was a last ditch effort that they knew that they might have to go to, uh, if they were really backed up against the corner. And obviously I think that's where they find themselves in. And then, yeah, we've seen some other really troubling ads, right? About, uh, the landfill where they're standing firm on that. Then there was that one page ad where they had uh, different uh, member, different NDP candidates that they were likening to a deck of cards and calling Wab Canoe a joker and and just some of this really, you know, what some have said almost childish kinds of tactics that I think really speak to a party that's just flailing and they don't really know what to do to try to salvage something. Mary Mary Agnes, I I don't want to politicize something about the search for the remains of murdered mm-hmm. women, right? I mean, the, the families of Mercedes Myron and Morgan Har- Harris, I don't think they necessarily wanted this to feature as prominently in the campaign as it has. I just wonder, though, how has this affected how people will vote, in your view? Is this an issue that people are making up their minds on as, as they vote today? You know, it sure wasn't early on in the campaign. It just didn't come up. Like, it didn't come up in polling. It didn't come up in focus groups right. as a top issue. I, I think... I do think on balance it will dissuade or kind of turn off more voters than it will attract. And I think it's also, I mean, the, the, the talk now as a lot of pundits try to figure out, like, why did they do this? What was the goal? What are we missing? A lot of people are talking about the, like, the sort of the resonance nationally. Is this, is this sort of a, a harbinger of what's to come nationally? Were they testing messaging and testing tactics in Manitoba? You mean um, for a federal yeah, campaign? Yeah, for a federal campaign. Federal. Yeah, because right. a lot of the folks working on the, for the Tories are involved federally a little bit. So it, it's, it's baffling, actually. 
Right. So, so Kelly, uh, on that, um, on federal-provincial relations, depending on how which way it goes, I mean, there's sort of this conservative wall of premiers from New Brunswick to uh, the Rocky Mountains, though some conservatives will quibble with Doug Ford and Longs in that group. Uh, how does whichever way it goes affect sort of Manitoba's uh, place in the federal-provincial dynamic nationally? Absolutely. I'm sure Justin Trudeau is very is very much uh, playing close attention to what happens here and really hoping that uh, that the incumbent Conservative government does not get in because, as you just said, it really will break up that wall, certainly across the Prairie provinces. I mean, you know, the, the Prime Minister already has his hands full uh, trying to negotiate interprovincial relations with uh, Saskatchewan, with Alberta. And so to have a more friendly face, a more friendly party in Manitoba in the form of Wab Canoe and the NDP would certainly help that. And I think it would also just provide, uh, you know, maybe take a little bit of the wind of the sails for the National Conservative Party. I think Mary Agnes is, is right that there is, uh, there's a little bit of a crossover between how the federal conservatives are trying to position themselves and some of their messaging and what's happening in Manitoba. And so if the Tories lose, it means it takes out some of that wind out of those sails. And, and then maybe we might see a little bit of a shift of direction federally. Yeah, well, Mary Agnes, if Heather Stephenson were to win tonight, it's, you know, another uh, conservative premier wants to get rid of carbon tax and these sorts of things. I mean, how would a shift to Wab Canoe change the FedProv dynamic in Manitoba, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it would change it for a little while, uh, you know, assuming Justin Trudeau and the Liberals stay in government for a long time. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that's the next question we might <laughs> want to talk about in the future. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, I mean, everything from housing funding to, you know, uh, greenhouse gas, you know, uh, climate change work. I think there's a lot of things that, that the Tories have, if not opposed, sort of stalled on, just been kind of slow on. And I think Wab Canoe will be looking to make big, bold moves in that first, those first few months. But you know, Kelly, he's run very heavily on health care, right? He's made that front mm -hmm. and center. And we've seen that in Nova Scotia, where Tim Houston won. And when you run on something as difficult to fix as health care, it becomes very challenging for you if people don't see and feel immediate results. I mean, you know, should he win tonight, boy, there's a lot of pressure to deliver on, on the hardest thing to deliver on, right? Absolutely. And we need money to do it, right? We've had record level fiscal yeah. tra transfer payments from the feds. Uh, we're, a, we're a net benefactor of equalization payments. So we need that federal money to keep rolling into Manitoba if we want to address uh, the healthcare file. So not only is it a difficult file, but it's one where we're dependent on the federal government to help us manage through. So yeah, it's kind of like be careful for what you wish for, for uh, Wab Canoe and the NDP. You know, uh, they might win government, but then it's like, okay, now we have to start start implementing and moving forward on all of our promises. And that's going to be tough. Okay, so uh, Mary Agnes, when we last spoke on Friday, you and Kelly both felt this election was trending towards a victory for Wab Canoe. Uh, we're going to get the actual numbers in just a few hours. Uh, people are going to see the early results. They're going to jump to conclusions. They should never do that with the early polls. But what are you going to watch for in terms of when we know something is going in a certain direction? Is there a cluster of ridings or is it South Winnipeg? Is it Northeast Winnipeg? Yeah. What, what's, what's the key for you? It's kind of, for me, the ones that will sort of signal that this might be a bigger NDP victory than, we've, than we thought might be possible are Fort Richmond, which is a hugely diverse riding, very uh, suburban in South Winnipeg. Okay, it's in South Fort, Winnipeg. Yeah, okay. Fort Richmond. Um, uh, kind of near the university, but very, tons of newcomer families. Um, and also Waverly, which is kind of on the, 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 the B 
list, I think, for the NDP as a possible pickup. Situate um, that geographically. Also very south, okay. even new, even more south, even more suburban. Okay. And those, to me, are the two, if they if they flip NDP, then this is maybe a bit more of a wave than we've, than we've figured. Right, because, Kelly, we sort of have this orange core to the city with a couple of drops of red in there where the Liberals have their three seats surrounded by this ring of blue, right? And if Winnipeg's the battleground, I mean, do you agree with Mary Agnes or is there something else you want to put on the watch for list? Yeah, for sure. Those ridings, and I'd also add uh, a riding like St. Boniface, uh, which is uh, close to where you are, right. uh, actually right across the river and in, in, in St. Boniface, the historic community of St. Boniface. Uh, that is Dougal Lamont's riding, the, the leader of the Liberal Party. And I mean, he, obviously, he's desperate to hold on to that seat, as indeed every Liberal seat. But I know the NDP have really been putting a big push on that. So if that seat flips, it means that the NDP path to victory is going to be quite solid. And we might possibly see that orange wave hap- uh, happen. Uh, across the province. So um, those Winnipeg ridings for sure in South Winnipeg, but also St. Boniface is one for me to watch. Well, you know, as luck would have it, we did an interview with Dougal Lamont a bit earlier in the show, and it's going to come up right after we say goodbye to you two. So Kelly Saunders and Mary Agnes Welsh, thank you for helping us throughout the campaign. We're going to see you both here tomorrow for a reaction and a dissection of tonight's election results. Thanks so much. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, as I mentioned... Thank you, Kelly. All right. Well, as I mentioned, we did speak to the liberal leader because this is either going to be the incumbent PCs or the opposition NDP that forms government here in Manitoba. But there is that third party hoping to disrupt that balance of power. Liberal leader Dougal Lamont, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Throughout this campaign, we've seen Wab Canoe calling for a majority government, Heather Stephenson campaigning for a majority government. You're calling for a minority government to sort of hold, hold them in check. What would you do with that balance of power should voters give it to you tonight? Oh, look, I mean, part of it is about the things we won't let them do. We won't let them, we don't want them to continue borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars for checks for billionaires. Uh, We want to make sure that education is funded properly. Um, We would make sure that we search the landfill. Um, And there's a whole series of measures that have to be taken. Look, I'll say the biggest thing is that both both these parties are running on the PC budget. I'm not joking. That is literally what the NDP have decided to do. And we think that's a bad idea. Now's the time to invest and rebuild. Uh, and that's what we have to be doing. Well, the other, look, it's, it's, I know this is, might, people might struggle with this, the idea that the Liberals are more led to the left of the NDP in Manitoba. Mm-hmm. But it's because we're actual centrists and the NDP have moved to the right. Um, and they're not going to be able to pay their bills. That's okay. The biggest concern. So if you do get this minority situation you're hoping for, where the Liberals kind of have the balance of power, it doesn't sound like you're looking at a coalition government with either one of them or a confidence and supply agreement. How would you approach it? Um, you do it on a one, one, one on an issue-by-issue basis. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not interested in sitting in any kind of coalition. Um, the important thing is we need to, still need to be able to have our independence to hold these two parties to account. Um, because, quite frankly, in office, their records are really, really quite terrible <laughs> and, in fact, indefensible sometimes um, across the board, whether it's on Indigenous issues, health, and, uh, and on climate. Like, there are a whole bunch of areas which are basically in crisis that these other two parties have ignored. And so we're saying we need to do what we can to end these crises, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in poverty, housing, homelessness, uh, and health including justice. There are a whole bunch of practical measures that we laid out on our platform that are non-existent to the other parties. So 
part of this is just about saying we need to make sure that these things are done and people are taken care of. Uh, on the math, you have three seats at, at dissolution, right? That's, that's what you're coming into this election with. They're all in Winnipeg. Yeah. The polls leading into this suggest the New Democrats are pretty strong yeah. here, here in the capital city. How worried are you about the vulnerability? They've gone after your riding. They've been in St. Boniface quite a bit. Sure. Well, I mean, look, they've gone after my riding because they're not comfortable with the things I've said about them. Uh, I've asked them very uncomfortable questions, including asking for an inquiry into uh, the cover-up of uh, harassment and abuse in labor, which hasn't come up. That's why the, uh, the former president of the Winnipeg Labor Council, Basia Sokol, endorsed us, because she says nothing's actually changed under the NDP. So part of the reason I'm being targeted is we've been asking very, very uncomfortable questions, and they would rather that I'm not around to answer those questions uh, in the legislature. So, um, But I think we've been running a targeted campaign. We have a whole series of... Uh, of, of candidates where we have the numbers, we've, it's just a question, we have great voter ID, we just have to make sure we get it out. You never know how it's all going to pan out at the end of the day, but I think like, we have shown, or we've tried to show that it's important to have another voice in there, to have a third voice in there, because right now it's the other two I mean, the, that's the irony. The other two pretend to be different, but they're actually running on the same fiscal platform. You, you mentioned the landfill, uh, which has become a real core issue in this campaign down the stretch. And you support a search with a 50-50 cost share with the federal government. And, and my sense from Ottawa is there is an appetite at the federal level yep. to, to participate in this. But how do you feel about the way this issue has been used in this campaign and kind of come to define a core part of this campaign? It's, it's horrific. I mean, we've, we condemned it. But this is, it's really, really terrible because at the end of the day, look, I've met with the families. We're talking about the families who are victims, who are, who, who, whose family members were murdered and abandoned in a landfill. Like, it is inhumane, quite frankly, what has been done to them. Like, this would be, if you're, this is like a form of psychological torture. If you imagine that you're one of those families and you're having to open the paper and see that the premier of the province is saying this stuff. There's billboards. And in the city. billboards, ads. It's terrible. It should never have been politicized. The whole thing, because what's happened in Ontario, the Ontario Provincial Police have a budget. This is a police issue. We don't have votes on, we should not be having referendums on whether we search and do a police investigation, especially when we know this has been happening. And I mean, what's going to happen? Does it mean in future, is this tell other future murderers to say, well, if you put something, somebody in the landfill, that it won't be searched? Hmm. This is, it's, it's, uh, it's been appalling. But uh, honestly, we came out about it just because it was the right thing to do. But the NDP have been dancing around this issue as well. It's not in their platform. They've now, Wab Canoe has said he'll support it, but he, he sort of doesn't give specific answers on the money. But, but, it's, all, but it's not in their platform. Right. Even if they were to say they have 174 things they say they will do, they don't say they will search the landfill. And they have put no money towards it. And the families of Mercedes Myron and, and Morgan Harris and, and, and friends of, of Buffalo Woman, the other unidentified woman whose remains are not sure where they are, they've, they've been pushing for this. It's yep. become a core election issue. And what really has been the tone of this election, you know, I see friendly Manitoba on your license plates. I don't see it in this campaign. Yep. I, I mean, what do you make of the tone of this? Is this a shift, uh, potentially a permanent shift in the way politics is done here? People talk about friendly Manitoba. We have very harsh politics here. Let's face it. Uh, and, and it's, and again, it's, and so part of that is, you know, it's like, what, what would be the saying? The, uh, 
the velvet, the mailed, the mailed fist in a velvet glove. There's a lot of that. Um, it's it's a very it's a very very tough. And you've, but and, and honestly, there have been incredible attacks uh, on both sides. And the entire strategy has basically been to say to pretend we don't exist. Well, so just and this is the challenge, right? With, with third parties in, in a polarized race, right? What's success for you tonight? Just as a last point, you have three seats going into this. It's 29 for a majority. You're not even campaigning for that. It's balanced. Is it holding you three and having a minority? Is it five? Is it six? Or what is success for you tonight? Well, look, I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen. I think we can hold our three. We certainly can. There's an individual like Willard Reeves, the NDP have no chance there. There are a number of other seats where we are either strong or leading. Um, so, yeah, we could. I know we can pick up, uh, and people should remember that, that it is perfectly fine to vote Manitoba Liberal and elect Manitoba Liberals, um, the, and that they shouldn't be you know, frightened into thinking that uh, they should vote NDP instead of Liberal because that won't actually defeat a PC at all. So for us, it would be great to be able to, to like, um, we won't hold the three, adding a, adding a fourth would make us official party status. If we get to six, um, then we're looking at balance of power. So, and, and, and frankly, that is really, really important uh, because, again, if you look at the, and, and it's this thing where everyone is persuaded to do it, look at everything except the plans. If you think, uh, if you actually take a moment to think, if you actually take a moment to look at what these parties are actually promising and what they've committed to, um, there's every reason to vote for Manitoba Liberals and make sure that there's somebody in there to hold these other two parties to account. Okay. Liberal Leader Dougal Lamont, thanks. Thank you so nice much. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Good luck Cheers. tonight. Thank you. L'honorable député de Hall-Elmer, Greg Fergus. Quebec Liberal MP Greg Fergus beat out six other candidates to become the first black person to hold the office of Speaker of the House of Commons. I'm really looking forward to working collaboratively with all of you. We need to make sure that we treat each other with respect. This should be inspiring for all Canadians. It is an incredible achievement to serve in the role uh, that Parliament has bestowed upon you. They're one day going to see your face on the walls of this chamber. There's going to be kids who maybe have come here and not seen themselves reflected on the walls. And that's going to change now. That's very powerful. All right, Greg Fergus is a soft-spoken and rather genteel guy, so will his election bring more decorum to the House? It's time to bring in the power panel on that point. Vanguard Strategy CEO Michelle Cadario joins us, as does Shakir Chambers, a principal with Ernst Cliff Strategy. Nigan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press and a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. And here with me in Winnipeg, Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. Brad, let's get started on that with you. I mean, the contrast between the House of Commons and the House of Representatives yeah. today and, and how things went. I mean, Greg Fergus's election, what's the challenge he's got ahead of him? Yeah, he, I, there, there, there are quite many. Uh, the, the first thing I think, obviously, is he's going to need a very good vetting process for when, you know, for the Speaker's Gallery, uh, whenever uh, heads of state from <laughs> yes. other countries come. Uh, un, kind of undoing and kind of fixing uh, the troubles that Mr. Rhoda had uh, as Speaker, I think, is, is, is got to have to be uh, front and center. As for decorum, lots of speakers run and say, I'm going to bring about decorum. They've been saying that for decades uh, on Parliament Hill. The House is in a different spot right now, though. It's bad energy. In it is. No, it, no, there's no question that it is bad, and it has gotten worse substantially over the last handful of years. Can the Speaker him, himself 
mm-hmm. uh, change that. I think there's a limited role. He can set the tone. Uh, but unless he starts throwing people out, and until the day where members of parliament stop using the theatre of getting kicked out to further their right. fundraising uh, strategies to say, look, I got kicked out of the House of Commons, now, now send me money. And uh, unfortunately, uh, far too many Canadians do that. Look, uh, it's a very exciting day for, for Canada in that the first person of colour is elected Speaker of the House. I, I do not want to change that. But other challenges that Mr. Fergus is going to have. He is a partisan. He used to, you know, he, had, he held positions within the Liberal Party of Canada. He used to be uh, a bit of a pit bull for the Prime Minister. He'd come out and... and, uh, and uh, he was and, his and, Parliamentary Secretary. You know, do the talking points... And and, and, and box on behalf of the Prime Minister. So the relationship that he has with many members of Parliament is going to be a little bit different uh, because of that partisan nature that he's had before. He's going to have to overcome, uh, I think, that, that potentially negative uh, attitudes towards him. Nigam, what's your thoughts on, on Greg Ferguson? I just want to emphasize again the historicness of today. Uh, the reality is, you know, Greg Fergus has been a longtime MP. Um, he's respected in the ways in which I think that, you know, within liberal circles particularly. But I think the most notable event today was when he was elected, uh, the biggest cheers came from Quebec, those from the Bloc. I mean, when do you see the Bloc Quebecois MPs rushing to go and congratulate uh, a member of parliament from the Liberal Party. I mean, he's from Quebec, but I think there is kind of an indicator that there is a historicness of today. Let's hope that that carries forward. However, I 100% agree that Greg Fergus is a longtime Liberal. He's very partisan. He's run uh, filibuster campaigns uh, to try to stop uh, conversations on committee. Um, He's used uh, tactics that are somewhat questionable that uh, and then on top of that, he's been a liberal for, we're talking three decades, and he's a president of the Young Liberals way back in the 1990s. I mean, the reality is that he's very soft-spoken, and I don't know how you get uh, this decorum back. I don't know how you get the respect back. Um, you know, I hope, I'm trying to think a glass half full on a, on a historic day like this, especially when we look at the rancor of the United States and people turning on themselves in the, in the House and tossing out the Speaker simply because he made an agreement with another party. Um, I hope that, they, uh, that we take a lesson to see that we need to get work done, and particularly for Canadians, and that, uh, that Greg Ferris might be somebody who can sort of help that along in a soft-handed way. Yeah, Michelle, uh, Nigam makes a really good point there that while soft-spoken, Greg Fergus has been deployed in partisan fashion, obviously as a liberal partisan. It's incumbent on him now, I guess, to rise uh, to, to the esteem of the office and, uh, and show a fair hand. Well, first, I'm so excited for Greg. I, am, I was a young liberal um, with Greg back in university. He's a, he's a dear old friend. And he's also someone who is incredibly even-keeled cares passionately about Canada, and let's be honest, every single person who's ever held the office of Speaker was a partisan from one party or another. Uh, so, you know, uh, everyone did their part when they, were, when they were in whatever role they were in, but Greg is somebody who I know is going to take this job very seriously. He cares deeply about the Parliament of Canada. He cares deeply about uh, about members of parliament and decorum um, and uh, you know and I think that he has made friends across the aisle um, of all the parties I think that there's a respect there for him um, and I actually think he's going to do fantastic in the job and you know Jagmeet Singh and his words about just the kids and the people who are now going to see a face that might more resemble their own on the halls of parliament it's a fantastic day for Canada you know, after a very 
troubling time of how we got to this position um, of having to elect a new speaker. Yep, and I'm reminded that Peter Milliken was quite a partisan before he became a speaker and served as a liberal speaker in a conservative minority government parliamentary sitting. So, you know, and Shakir, it almost seemed like we might have the reverse of that here because Chris Dontremont looked to have a real shot at winning today. And I've got, I want to talk about that in just a second, but what's your thoughts on Greg Fergus uh, rising to this office today? Listen, good for him. Uh, obviously, a, a good symbol to, to have a black man as a speaker. I wish him the best. But I think for all the reasons that we've said before, I think the conservatives are going to be a little suspicious. Uh, I don't know the level of trust they're going to have given the previous roles that he's occupied. So we'll see how this all plays itself out. But I would just say when you talk about decorum, uh, a smart colleague of mine who used to work in Parliament Hill said to me, acrimony is a feature of the House. It's not a bug. And I don't know if any speaker is going to actually remove that kind of partisanship and divisiveness that we see today. But again, I wish him the best of luck. You know, uh, Shakir, just to stick with you, it was interesting when, when, when this all happened, because let's face it, this succession was not planned, uh, a lot of liberals seemed open to Chris uh, Dontremont uh, getting the job. But then on the day that Rhoda quit and he handled question period, and what I'm hearing from inside the Liberal caucus is that when Melissa Lansman called Karina Gould a disgrace and he didn't drop the hammer on Lansman, that may have cost him the opportunity because a lot of liberals just said, forget it. Uh, they, they felt that it was too much to appease the conservative side of it. I, I mean, what do you make uh, of that dynamic and, and how that, you know, the, the defeat of Mr. Dontremont could play into the success or failure of Mr. Ferguson's tenure? Yeah, I mean, interesting. I haven't heard that story. I would say at the end of the day, I always thought a liberal would be the speaker after this vote was said and done. I mean, liberals had caucus this morning. I'm pretty sure they organized their votes for who they wanted to see in that chair, and they, they got the job done. Uh, could have Dutchman handled that a little a little bit better? Obviously, he could have. But again, I think the conservatives are going to look at Mr. Fergus and see how he handles you know uh, things on the liberal side of the House. And any kind of slip-up, he's going to get accused of being partisan, of not being impartial. So I think he needs to be extra careful, uh, given what you've just said about Mr. Dutchman and handling Melissa Lansman. So, so, Brad, on, on this, um, the issue, you mentioned the need for greater vetting of who gets invited to the gallery after the, the events that led to this. Does this need to be a full-blown committee investigation into this? I know it's being punted to proc. They're going to look at some of these things sort of backward-looking, but do they need a bigger review of how all of this works? That's the nerdiest question I think you've ever yeah, given know, me. What committee should this go to? It should but, go but, to or should it even go to committee? It should, like, should. It should go to PROC, because if it doesn't go to PROC, then, then, then what's going to happen is uh, you, you have to let MPs have their say on the matter, even though uh, it's probably not going to be uh, fixed by new, new and more rules. Right. Uh, well, I will, uh, hopefully one day we will find out what truly, what truly did happen and how many people were involved. I know it, I know it wasn't what the, Mr. Polyev says, where it was, uh, it was up to the Prime Minister. He clearly is, yeah. I, I think, misleading Canadians in, 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 in how it all works. Now, just taking a look at the, at the vote today for Mr. Fergus, there were six people that ran for that. And f for the Liberals to make sure that they didn't want the Conservative, there was a New Democrat, there was a Green um, also running for this. But you really had to make sure you had your votes lined up because it could have gone another way. The, the Liberals were splitting their vote multiple. There was many. There was a handful right. of Liberals uh, running for this. They, they really had to have their ducks in a row. So, so, Michelle, do you have any insight on that, being an old you know, university buddy of, of, of the current speaker? Because uh, I was hearing early that uh, kind of the votes were, were split uh, between Mendes and, and Fergus, right? Alexander Mendes, who's part of the House leadership team there now, is deputy speaker, I think, or assistant speaker. I can't remember the exact title. Do you have any idea on how it coalesced behind Fergus? Do you have any insight there or any theories? 
I don't I don't know the details of how it do, how it happened, but I do know that generally there's someone who's keeping a very close count uh, within the Liberal Party, yeah. probably within the Whip's office, and you know these things don't get left to chance. The people in the Whip's office know how to count votes, or they're not, or they are not in the Whip's office anymore because that's that's their specialty. And so I suspect there might have been a couple of potential outcomes, but I don't think that it, we would ever have gone away from today without a Liberal in that chair, particularly given the um, heightened acrimony that has uh, exists now in the House of Commons, um, that I think that uh, uh, putting somebody in that they think that they can count on to be that calm and level voice um, uh, and that they know well. Uh, is uh, probably where the Liberal caucus was going to coalesce anyways. And so um, Greg seems like a great choice for that. Right. Okay, uh, Nigan first and, and, and then Shakir, just to sort of close the loop on this. Do, do we think now that they've moved past the process of picking the new speaker, Nigan, that this puts an end to the story and the narrative about Yaroslav Hunka and why he was in the gallery and the fallout and the controversy there and now Parliament moves on? Or does that story still have legs? Uh, no, I think it continues. I um, uh, just want to add something to what was said a minute ago. I mean, don't forget that the block votes sure. uh, and how important they felt for Greg Fergus's yeah. uh, election. I mean, I think there's a role there, and there's certainly a story that might be worth thinking about. Um, getting back to what you just asked me, which is uh, this doesn't put it away. This doesn't close the chapter on the issue involving who gets to sit and who gets to get to be invited by the speaker to come to events like when you invite the Ukrainian prime minister or the prime president. Um, the, the reality is that this story is not going to go away because it has legs. It has all the different features that Pierre Polyev wants when it comes to uh, pointing out the alleged corruption or alleged uh, mismanagement or inability, ineffectiveness, and so on. It, it paints all the pictures for Pierre Polyev, but it won't be the lead story. Uh, and so moving the, right. away from the speaker and moving into a new position, especially with this, such a historic occasion. And then on top of that, for the what we talked about just a minute ago, the potential election of the first First Nations pre Prime Premier, it's going to be turned into page six, seven, eight, and I think it will begin to fade away on the, uh, this story, and it won't certainly have the legs that it had about 24 hours ago. Okay, page six, seven, and eight for the kids watching. He's talking about a newspaper, which is a physical thing that you used to be able to buy. Shakir, uh, well, what's, what's your take? Oh, come on. on, on, oh, come on. This is the, <laughs> I get it, I get it, but it is handling it. Uh, Shakir, uh, your quick final thoughts okay. on this one. Fourth segment, fifth yeah, segment. I think, it, I think it closes the chapter on this, but I, I think as this goes to committee, uh, you know the conservatives are going to be looking for was PMO yeah. involved in any way? Did they drop the ball? They're going to try to make that connection. But if it is all just Anthony Rota or his chief of staff kind of dropped the ball on this, it really closes the book on this and people move forward, talk about affordability, housing, et cetera, what we were talking about prior to this. Okay, gang, uh, we've got to leave it there. I want to thank the power panel, Michelle Cadario, Shakir Chambers, Brad Levine here in Winnipeg, and Egon Seclair, not in Winnipeg. Welcome back to Power and Politics, live from Winnipeg, because it's Election Day in Manitoba. And we're going to bring it back to our top story, which is today's election. We have a panel of campaign insiders joining us to take us inside the campaigns and the decisions they made and the expectations they have as the actual results are coming in. For the Manitoba PCs, we have Conservative Senator for Manitoba, Don Plett, who was an advisor for the campaign. He joins us from Ottawa. And here with me in Winnipeg, Cheryl Oates is a former director of communications for Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. 
but she's been helping the Manitoba NDP on debate strategy. And Roy Jemison is the Director of Communications for the Manitoba Liberal Party. All right, gang, it's good to see you all. Uh, Senator Plett, I woke up here this morning to a tremendous thunderstorm. I'm not sure what that foretells for the political fates of, of the PCs in Ontario. Uh, just a couple hours before we get the results, what, what are your expectations of where your party's campaign is at this point? Well, my wife told me about the thunderstorm, David, so uh, uh, I heard about it. But uh, listen, it's going to be a very, very close race uh, tonight, I believe. I believe uh, the campaigns have uh, all fought hard. I think uh, Heather Stephenson and our team have done an incredible job of, uh, of moving our party forward in the last uh, year and a half or that Heather has been uh, the leader. And uh, I'm looking forward to the results tonight. I think it will be a tight race, but, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the polls tonight are the ones that will count. And, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm optimistic that we will come out ahead. Cheryl, uh, the last time we spoke was in Alberta for the election there, and it was all about Calgary, and it, it feels similar in that it's all about Winnipeg, and the farther south the NDP can go, uh, the better their chances are of forming government. How, what are your expectations uh, tonight? Well, just like I said in Alberta when you asked me the same question, <laughs> I think every seat counts. Sure does. We are campaigning in every single seat, and of course there is a heavy concentration in Winnipeg, especially in those seats that the NDP has not held since, you know, for the last seven years at least. Um, and the NDP is competitive in every seat across Winnipeg and, of course, in seats outside of Winnipeg because we need to flip a few seats if we want to form a majority tonight. So, Roy Jemison, a different story for the Liberals. We had your leader on earlier today and you've got the three seats and he says he just wants to hold whoever wins to a minority so he can get the balance of power. The New Democrats are pretty strong in Winnipeg where all of your seats are. I mean, how are you feeling uh, in the last hours of this campaign? We're feeling very positive, very positive. Uh, this, uh, we think uh, since uh, Dougal's, Lamont's very strong performance at the debate last, uh, just before advanced uh, voting opens, opened, uh, really caused a shift in the campaign. We're hearing at the doors, uh, a lot of former soft PC voters are now leaning our way. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the possibility of a minority government is definitely there. We see a path. Uh, the provincial polling numbers generally don't reflect and aren't granular enough to show really what's going on sure. at the constituency level. And we know there are a number of seats that are open for, for the taking. Uh, we're very confident we're going to hang on to uh, the three uh, existing seats and possibly add one, two, possibly three more. So it, it's, yes, I agree with uh, Senator Plett. Uh, it's going to be a very close r result tonight. Um, perhaps not as close as we thought it was going to be uh, a few weeks ago. Right. Uh, uh, the PC party has essentially put, uh, driven their tires into the ditch, and um, it's really changed the result. The dynamic of the tone of the campaign has really affected Okay so, the outcome. okay, so Senator Platt, I, I wanted to ask you about that, the tone and, and some of the criticism of, of the way the, the PC campaign has been run, in particular the ads that have come out in, in the, the dying days of this campaign saying, you know, vote like nobody is watching. It's almost like people might be embarrassed to vote for the PCs, but you're trying to tell them it's okay. Walk me through the thought process and the strategy behind these ads. Well, uh, clearly, David, the ads uh, the ads have been been effective. We have been uh, 
uh, making it clear to people what 17 years of NDP government did and uh, what Wab Kanu would do if he formed a government. And, and uh, it is something that we needed to do from the start. Um, as I said, uh, Heather came through a tough time. Uh, COVID was, was difficult on us, and uh, as it was on every government in the country. And, and so she's done a good job, and we did, uh, we did a lot of advertising, letting people know what to expect if they elect a Wab Canoe. And uh, uh, we have been criticized for that, but the fact of the matter is, uh, I do not believe that, uh, that there has been anything said that uh, isn't something that uh, mm -hmm. the people of Manitoba absolutely needed to hear. Well, Senator, what about the ads on the landfill voting to stand firm to make that such a central point of the campaign? Well, why do you think the Stephenson campaign made that choice? Well, I'm not sure that I agree that it was a central part of the campaign. Clearly, we advertised or didn't advertise, said we would not go and, and dig up the landfill for very clear reasons that the premier pointed out. There are a lot of safety issues there. Uh, we have invested $120 million in eradicating homelessness in Manitoba. That is something we have focused on. Uh, there is no proof that, there, that these, these, these unfortunate young ladies are, are buried in that landfill. And uh, we believe clearly Manitobans want us to focus uh, on, on other areas of helping uh, the homelessness, helping the indigenous, $10 million to the very first ever uh, indigenous-run Right. Um, uh, addiction center, $16 million to combat uh, domestic violence. Those are the things that people need to focus on. Cheryl, uh, th those issues, the landfill issue in particular in the key battleground of Winnipeg, how do you think, you know, and I don't want to make politics, you know, out of uh, missing and murdered women, but how do you think this issue has played in terms of like affecting voter intention in this city? Well, I think I agree with the senator on one thing. Those ads were really effective. And they were really effective in reminding people why they don't like the PCs and reminding them that they're looking for an alternative to vote for. And I think what's most disappointing about the ads is that not they didn't go at the NDP. They didn't go at the NDP leader. They leveraged the lives of families and innocent kids to try to make political gains. And I think Manitobans saw through that and are, the momentum is building behind a more positive campaign and a vision of uniting Manitobans rather than dividing them. Roy, uh, what, what's your view on this issue and how it's uh, affected the whole the dynamics here? I thought the uh, I think a lot of Manitobans uh, see those ads as frankly disgusting. Uh, it should never have been a political issue in the first place. It's a moral issue. We're talking about uh, the graves of Indigenous women, uh, and we're haggling over cost. Uh, right from the outset, uh, the Manitoba Liberal Party committed to searching the landfill, no question. And we will cover 50% of the cost, whatever that w may be. Mm -hmm. uh, Wab Canoe uh, couldn't commit to the, uh, the $184 million uh, cost that was outlined in the frankly trumped up uh, feasibility study. Um, Regardless of the cost, uh, Manitoba Liberals commit to uh, paying 50 percent. 
David. Okay, we're just, David, uh, really I'm like trying to, comment to yeah, on go that, ahead, Senator. Yeah. Please, David. Go right ahead, sir. The fact right of ahead. the matter is, yep. David, that the NDP and the Liberals made this a political issue. We had the Premier of Manitoba making a commitment quite some time ago, not You're as a campaign issue, not as a campaign issue. This started as a promise by the Premier of Manitoba. Now, Roy says that they will pay 50% of the cost. That leaves $90 million out there for somebody else to pick up. Nobody has jumped to the pump volunteering to pay that. Now, again, this was not started as a campaign issue. This was done by the Premier of Manitoba when she was asked quite some time ago with tears in her eyes, as a mother uh, said how sad she was about what happened, but she was re had, had to make a responsible, and you're very difficult choice. And you calling it a landfill dig. It's disgusting. Okay. Um, all right. I have to make a hard pivot now because I, 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 I want to ask for your predictions on what you might think happened tonight uh, after that. So, Senator, I, I just wonder, I, I mean, I, I assume you think your team is going to win. It takes 29 seats for a majority here in Manitoba. What do you think uh, the PCC count will be at the end of the night? Well, David, uh, I'm not going to give you a count. I believe we are going to win a majority government tonight. And uh, if we do that, uh, we, will be, uh, we will be very happy. Uh, we are prepared to continue to govern as we have done over the last seven years. And I think we will be able to continue to do that tomorrow. Cheryl, are you willing to give a seat count where you think the New Democrats are going to end up this evening? I am absolutely not willing to give a seat <laughs> count, but I will say that I think there is incredible momentum behind the NDP, an incredible feeling in Manitoba that people are looking for a change in government, and they see that opportunity in the NDP and Wabkanoo, and I think no matter what, we're going to be extremely proud of the campaign we ran tonight. Okay, so Roy, am I going to go 0 for 3 and trying to get a seat count uh, prediction uh, from, from this panel? Well, prediction is a, an NDP government. The question is whether it will be a majority or a minority. Um, we're very optimistic. I think we're going to regain official party status again tonight, uh, get our four, and uh, possibly add a few more. Right. I won't go any further than that. Okay, well, the polls don't close for another two and a half hours, but the Roy Jemison Decision Desk is projecting an NDP government. We just have to wait for the counting to find <laughs> out what it's going to be. I, I want to thank you all so much for joining us. Senator Don Platt in Ottawa, Cheryl Oates, and Roy Jemison here with me in Winnipeg. Thanks so much, gang. Much thank you, thank you very much. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.